2: Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. On this week's panel, we have the fiery and brilliant Dr. Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and Women's Gender st- and Sexuality Studies at Penn State University, all round badass Jessica Luther, independent writer, General Slayer, and author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football, and the Politics of Rape, Dr. Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History, an undeniable genius at Hofstra University in New York. And I'm Shereen Ahmed, freelance sports writer, cat lover, currently visiting my mom in Windsor, Ontario. Before we begin, I would like to thank our patrons for their generous support and to remind our new flamethrowers about our Patreon campaign. You pledge a certain amount monthly, as low as $2 and as high as you want to become an official patron of the podcast. In exchange for your monthly contribution, you get access to special rewards. With the price of just a latte a month, you can get access to extra segments of the podcast, a monthly newsletter, and an opportunity to record on the Burn Pile, only available to those on our Patreon community. So far, we have been able to solidify funding for proper editing and transcripts, but are hoping to reach our dream of hiring a producer to help us with the show. Burn It All Down is a labor of love, and we believe in this podcast, but having a producer to help us grow would be amazing. We are so grateful for your support. And with that, we have an upcoming special announcement. So I'm going to throw it to Amira to give us some clues. Amira. Hey, y'all.
1: I've been teasing this. We've all been teasing this for the last few weeks, but I'm proud to announce that it is finally here. Burn It All Down swag has arrived. So by the time you're hearing this episode, you'll be able to log on to our Teespring store storefront teespring.com backslash burn dash it dash all dash down but of course we'll link that on our twitter page and our website and there you'll be able to get mugs and shirts and hoodies for the fall a whole variety of merchandise featuring not just our logo that you have come to know and love but two new burn all down exclusive designs and so definitely check it out Plus, that's not all. We want to announce two contests. So one, tweet us or Facebook us your favorite show moments, whether it's an interview, a particular segment. It could even be our conversation about how I'm amazing at escape rooms. Whatever (laughs) it is, let us know and be entered to win exclusive merchandise. That contest will run to the end of September. Similarly, Sign up to be a new Patreon during this month, so again, by the end of September, and also be entered to win some exclusive swag. To our current Patreons, we have already sent you some swag. It's on the way, and you should be receiving it any day now. So anyways, I'm super excited. Be on the lookout. Burn it all down swag, so then you're out on the streets. You can see who else is a flamethrower just like you.
2: Thank you so much, Amira. We have an incredible show, as usual, episode 71 coming your way. We will talk Cap and Nike. We will talk surfing. And I have a great interview with author Bonnie Sui. Hang on to your hat. Before we get started, let's have a little conversation about what we did Over the weekend and what playoffs we're watching. And why we talk about this is the emotional component and our investment into sports.
3: Jessica, tell me about your feelings. (laughs) All of them? This this shows only so long. Yeah, so I'm really into the WNBA finals, semifinals and finals. The semifinals were amazing and exhausting and just took you on the ride that you really want as a sports fan. I lost my entire mind and body when Sue Bird went on her 14 point run in the fourth quarter against Phoenix. Like she just couldn't miss. And I, it was just. I could feel it in my body, the way that I was reacting to her. The first game of the WNBA finals were less climactic, to say the least, but I'm hopeful that we will get much better play from Washington. By the time you guys hear this, we will have had game two, which is going to air in a few hours for us. So you know, I'm hopeful and I want to go on that emotional journey during the finals as well. That's like that cathartic release you get from sport. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it.
0: I have a brief respite, which is really good because school just started and I have a bunch of deadlines. So for me, the last playoffs I've been super invested in is Copa Libertadores, which is the club competition in South America and Colo Colo which is the Chilean club. They're in the middle of this really political fight to keep the club from being privatized. And they have this amazing feminist front. So it's hard for me not to root for them. And they played Corinthians August 29th to go on to the quarterfinals, which is a really big deal. And during that game, this is so embarrassing. I thought that if I watched the second half and didn't just watch the updates, that they would lose. Like, I was really sure somehow.
3: (laughs) We've all been there.
0: How do I do this? Like, what? I am an adult, like, (laughs) who has been privileged by education. And I seriously believe somehow that they'll lose just because I want them to win if I watch the second half. So I watch the first half. They were in Brazil, and they ended up losing, but they still won because it was the second leg. So, anyway, that's the kind of craziness. That's the crazy headspace it puts me in.
2: Amira, what about you?
1: <laughs> yeah, most, the first. Can I just say I'm so I'm not burning this, but this is like burnable. The fact that the Mystics game three is scheduled not in their usual arena, but in a gym in Fairfax at George Mason. Despite my anger about that, I love the thrill of playoffs, particularly tight games and comebacks so much that I end up like YouTubing the end of like Patriot Super Bowls that went in my favor, or I watch the Red Sox come back in the Yankees in 2004. And so basically, I did that two days ago. And I was up for like four hours on YouTube just watching the end of great playoff games. And so that's all to say that I'm mostly really excited for this, for October baseball. And I'm having fun with the WNBA finals. And I kind of feel like the fall is something new. Like it starts to be like football season and college sports. But I'm really ready for October baseball.
2: That's awesome. For me, uh, Champs League is starting to get underway. I just watched a little bit of the US Open um, and the emotions there were palpable, particularly the Naomi Serena final, which we will talk about. And, for me, like just for example, in terms of emotional investment into sports, particularly I find when I'm rooting for a team, like I did Puerto Rico, I cheered for them. They didn't go far, but your body gets physically tense and you feel exhausted after the matches. So it's just like, how do I handle this? Like I had to lie down many times during the World Cup, and I foresee that happening in future. Like you're just you're so emotionally tied to this sport where there's 22 people trying to put a ball in the back of a net. It's so interesting. Interesting. And even the WNBA finals, like, I mean, I wanted to, you know, give Lindsay some chai with extra cardamom because I was just like her Twitter feed was was amazing. Like she was just so excited. And that's
1: what I was telling you guys last year, like during the Super Bowl. Like, I'm like, it's not even fun for me anymore. Like, literally, I'm like physical agony watching the Patriots play. Like my stomach is in knots, my palms are sweaty. I can't eat. I have literally no appetite. And It only starts to ease if we're comfortably ahead. And so I'm just like, why this is like for a number of reasons in which why I don't want to like watch the NFL.
2: But yeah, uh, like Amira, the the this is like at the top of that. The pats make me nauseous too, Amira. Don't worry. Um. (laughs) Never a moment goes by. To start our episode, Jessica, can you take us through Cap and Nike?
3: Sure. So I'm not going to give too much background because we have talked repeatedly about Kaepernick and the protests by NFL players against police brutality and racial injustice. You can search that on our website if you want to listen to any of those episodes. Also, we have a wonderful hot take that went up just a few days ago where Amira talks with Tony Smith-Thompson about Kaepernick, protests, capitalism, and corporations. So please make sure to listen to that. It is really, really good. But for those who don't know, this week, Nike announced that Kaepernick would be one of the faces of the 30th anniversary of their Just Do It campaign, alongside Serena, LeBron, Odell Beckham Jr., Lacey Baker, the first openly queer woman to join the Nike skateboarding team in 2017 and Shaquem Griffin, the first one-handed athlete in NFL history. The print image of Kaepernick is an up-close black-and-white image of his face with the words believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything, as well as the just-do-it slogan and the Nike swoosh. There's also an inspirational TV spot that Kaepernick narrates, and which Nike aired during the game on Thursday night, the first game of the NFL season. In the ad, there is no mention of racial justice or an image of Kaepernick kneeling, I believe. But it's a hell of an inspirational ad about chasing your dreams. Nike received more than $43 million in media exposure from after Kaepernick tweeted out this image in the last few days and has gotten a 31% bump in online sales this week. So it's already working. Two last things before we jump in. First, a reminder that both Kaepernick and Eric Reed, Cap's former 49er teammate who is the second person to kneel, they don't have jobs in the NFL this season. And Cap is suing the NFL for collusion around his blackballing. And second, in May, the NFL signed an eight-year contract with Nike for Nike to provide game day uniforms and sideline apparel for all 32 teams. That eight-year deal is supposedly worth $1 billion. In case anyone thinks Nike is Nike using Kaepernick in their ads is going to be the end of the company. Okay, so there's a lot here. We can talk platform. We can talk capitalism. We can talk about whether activism or justice can be branded. We can talk about Nike's all over the placeness regarding causes it takes up and oppressions that it commits. We can talk about the power of images. We can talk individual versus systems. We can talk Nike versus NFL. We can talk about Nike, calculating that the better marketing choice is to sign Kaepernick rather than not. We can go in so many directions. So where do you guys want to start with this?
2: Um, I just wanted to reiterate something you said really quickly, Jessica. Amira, your conversation with Tony was excellent, and I really recommend everybody talk about that. I did want to just draw attention quickly to something that uh, Lindsay had reminded us that, you know, in all the lauding of Nike, it's really important to remember that we have to stay critical. Like, there absolutely is a place to support caps, support marginalized athletes, but remain critical of Nike, which let's not forget is not a philanthropic organization. It's a corporation that makes tons of money. And, you know, Lindsay had uh, re-shared an article she wrote about Nike's commitment to MSU and not saying anything about the athletes and the horrible Sexual abuse scandal that happened with the gymnast and uh, Nasser. And I think it's just, it's important to stay cognizant. Also, Phil Knight recently contributed 500000 to a Republic gubernatorial, which is a really interesting word, gubernatorial candidate in Oregon. And that was shared by our friend and friend of the show, Dr. Jules Boykoff. So it's just, it's, it's a lot of things here to, to wrap our heads around, but like it's, it's complicated. Um, Jess?
3: Yeah, and on that note, you know, Nike has done a lot of work around LGBTQ athletes. That's really admirable and I, you know, it's it's like I really love all of that. At the same time, Jackie Keeler, a Native American woman, an indigenous woman here in the States, tweeted this week about how Nike wouldn't get behind them on their Not Your Mascot campaign because Nike provides the uniforms for the Cleveland baseball team. Um, and it's actually been Adidas that stepped up in that space behind that. So Nike's kind of all over the place when it comes to what issues they choose to get behind. And sometimes it's really cool. And other times it's really head scratching and upsetting. And so this is just like just slot this in that history.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's totally spot on. And it's very interesting, because when you listed all the ways we could take this, you're right, there's so much here. And I think, you know, starting with Nike as a corporation is a kind of good place to start, because they do have this very kind of up-and-down wishy-washy history in which their brand has been tied to this kind of sense of rebellion, the sense of kind of rebels and social justice and all this stuff, where they take calculated risks. So in the 90s, you might remember, they did a series of adverts with women, targeting women. And that was largely led by a team of four women who designed one of the most infamous commercials, If You Let Me Play. And in this commercial, it's a series of young girls who are saying, if you let me play, and quoting statistics about the benefits of sports for young girls. And they did a series of these commercials to encourage girls to get into sport at a time when nobody was really doing this at all. And... One of the things it points to, though, is this team of women had to fight a lot with the execs in the office to even get these aired. And then when it ended up blowing up and they got all of this good kind of press and all of these letters saying how much the ads meant, then they were like, oh, we'll actually, like, keep going with this campaign. But at the same time in the 90s, you might remember that Jordan obviously was elevated to, like, the biggest brand spokesman with the Be Like Mike campaign and Craig Hodges, former NBA player, took a lot of exception to the way he felt Nike and Jordan remain silenced on political issues. So Rodney King, for instance, was beaten in 1992 and Jordan uh, refused to comment on it. This is when he's famously, you know, the same time was when pushed to weigh in on Jesse Helms said Republicans buy shoes too. And Craig Hodges in particular, wanted there to be a Nike boycott because of their history of child labor and sweatshops in developing nations and pushed Jordan to walk away from the brand, saying that they could make their own shoe company and sell shoes to, you know, in Black communities themselves. And they didn't need Nike because of all of these kind of human rights violations and could not get Jordan to budge on that. And in fact, after being very outspoken on his proposed Nike boycott, among other things, was not picked up by any team while he was still in his prime and a very, very good player and really pushed out of the league as well. And so for me, it's really interesting to think about because as you mentioned, Jess, their commercials are really powerful. And even this month, for instance, they released a commercial in Mexico that features Mexican women athletes, Olympians, running through the streets, navigating kind of all of the sexism, somebody chanting at them or kind of goading them on, and they're kind of running past that, doing gymnastics. The boxer, I forget her name, you know, punches literally through these barriers. And it's funny because I I remarked that, you know, they could have filmed this in Nike's boardroom with women at execs running through their office because on the heels of the (laughs) report in the last month about how rife, sexism, is in Nike's top offices, and it's already resulted in a lawsuit. So I think that is the kind of duality here is like you're in one way branding yourself and like rightfully so have actually been on the forefront of some of these advertising, but what is the limit of that? What is, you know, representation matters. And so that's the hard part for me. When I wrestle with this, I showed this in my class and like, my students were crying. And the other thing I want to say bef- on that representation matters, the thing about the commercial before we like get into it more is it also is a super amount of visibility for disability awareness and the athletes with disabilities that are featured in the video are not positioned in this kind of like sad or like uplift inspiration. Like they are just, they're included. And I think, I know mem- a lot of members who argue for disability rights were really, really impressed with that inclusion. So I think those things do matter. And then, you know, and so with, with that caveat, <laughs> well, I, I can proceed to tear it apart. So
0: yeah. I don't think there's such a good, like a good corporation. I don't think there's such a thing. And I think all of this is calculated because they realize what can make them money. I think it's kind of that simple. And it does matter. It's not, it's, it's not that it doesn't matter. I totally agree with Amira. Representation matters. And even if it's profitable, corporations have clung to racism and sexism. So it's not like, you know, so simple as that. But in this case, I do I do feel like I'm happy to see Cap getting getting something. Like he's amazing and will do so much more with whatever funds and resources he has than just any other athlete. And to continue to see the movement stay in the limelight is awesome. The Mexican women thing gives me huge pause. Again, it's it is like a marketing decision. And I just cannot get over the sweatshop labor. I just still can't. I mean, every time my kids put on something with Nike, I say to them, It's for kids by kids. And like I know I'm like a bummer. I'm like the biggest bummer mom in the whole world, right? But I say to them, just know that another child probably made that. And I just can't there's no getting over that for me. And so I I, I still wear it. capitalism's a total system. We're not bad people for picking the better of you know, evils, but I do hope that, I don't know, Cap finds a way to also shine light on the people who are making those products.
2: I just wanted to, on that note, Brenda, to follow. And your anti-capitalism is showing. It's lovely. It's beautiful. I think that Dave Zirin last week wrote this really cool piece that I appreciated. And he had a line in that, like, will the revolution be branded? And one of the things that Nike has tried to do, and I've seen so many criticisms of really brilliant people on this. One of my favorite Twitter accounts, football a country, the football offshoot of Africa as a country. Um, Elliot Ross, our friend, had said that like don't be fooled by this like you know Nike is not this renegade revolutionary it's a corporation they they looked at their numbers before these decisions were made and we've seen the result in spikes in you know purchasing this week post the reveal of cap as as face of the campaign and I mean I think that I mean whether or not people choose to burn that merchandise or wear it the fact is that Nike got money from their purchases so let's just like be clear about that. And I just, it it's super complicated for me because at the same time, like just mentioned, there's a lot of LGBTIQ work. There's a lot of, you know, talking about they're, they're the first ones to the biggest company to put women in hijab in mainstream advertising. They're not the first to create a sports hijab. I wrote about that, read about it, but they Really went super big on that, and it and it was by design because there's a market for it. I don't, I will never believe that Nike came up with a design for a hijab because they love Muslim women. Like that's just no one's ever gonna convince me of that. Secondly, one thing. I just wanted to add really quickly, Amira, a f- our, one of our guest hosts, Shakaia Taylor, who I love very much, just actually had sent us an article, and I wanted to throw this out there, kind of digressing, about Michael Jordan saying that about Republicans buy shoes. And it was it's a slight article from two years ago that maybe he didn't actually say that. So I just wanted to add that in there, because that wrapped around so much of what MJ, you know, his it, when you, people think of him, that's one of the most famous things that he said floating around there. So just for anyone interested, we'll add that into the show notes. Amira, you wanted to add something else?
1: Yeah, like on that specific quote, it's long been thought about whether, like, did he say it or not? But he's definitely gestured to, without that specific wording, we have him on record saying similar to the similar gestures, which is like, I'm not weighing into this because as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar says, he chose commerce over conscious. So I think, you know, Shireen's points are are spot on and, and Jules and Ben Carrington and Dave like joined the litany of voices kind of raising this hesitation. And I think one of the big things is, and Tony said in our, in our hot take, like in what world do we live in that Nike and NFL are rivals? And Nike did, went out of their way to position themselves as such. And thinking about what that means when people in, res- in acts of resistance are equating that with buying a Nike shoe. And I think that's where a lot of the, the problem comes in. And I think that it's significant to know that CAP made it you know, uh, part of the contract that they gave a hefty donation to the Know Your Rights campaign echo somebody like Simone Manuel who put in an inclusion rider in her contract, right? So this is something that's been done. And, you know, Black women have also been, been doing things like this with their corporate sponsorships. And I think the real thing that for me this left me with is the way that protest has become profitable. I think of Pepsi's failed ad with Kendall Jenner. I think of even when I was, you know, in college, the commodification of Che Guevara and the shirts that people would wear. And I think that there's a way that we have to kind of be hypercritical of it so that we don't fall prey to equating buying shoes with actual sustained solidarity and resistance. Because just this week, we saw another unarmed Black man killed. And this is why people were kneeling and people are are raising their fists and people are speaking out. And in this controversy, we can't let The radical act then be buying shoes when that's not going to help us you know who are being killed in the streets
2: on to our next segment amira would you like to take us through
1: so this week the world surfing league announced that moving forward it will be equal pay for equal waves they are closing its gender pay gap in the world surfing league and moving forward in two thousand, starting in two thousand nineteen, women surfers will receive the same earnings for winning as their male counterparts. This is certainly something should be hailed, and it's the first U.S. based sport league, sporting league, I think, as a whole, to do this move. And I think that's really, really, really cool and really important. It also got me thinking about surfing as a whole, a sport that you might associate with maybe surf California culture, you know, dude bros, whatever. And I think that there's a really hidden but fascinating deep history here about surfing as a sport, about Native Hawaiian culture, Indigenous Hawaiian culture, and colonialism. How surfing moved from being a sport in Hawaii to being this kind of branded, institutionalized competition is very fascinating to me. And so... I felt like one of the discussions we should have highlighting a sport that we don't necessarily talk about as much is what's going on in the surfing world that can tell us about race, gender, colonialism, indigeneity. And so when I saw this headline, I was like, maybe this is the perfect moment to have that conversation. So what's up with surfing?
0: I have it. Uh, this is such a good point that you're bringing up, because when I looked at at least all the links to talk about the gender gap in surfing, it, they were really great, and I did not see any real mention of Native Hawaiian traditions of surfing and how Native Hawaiians have responded to this or participated in it. So it's such a good point, because when I teach the history of surfing, and maybe other people do too, when I teach surfing, I usually start with Duke Kahanamoku, who is uh, was a native Hawaiian at the turn of the twenty, well, early twentieth century, and he was a five time Olympic medalist in swimming, and he's sort of responsible for the mass diffusion of the sport because he was such a prominent swimmer, and his struggles to get his titles and world records recognized in surfing and in swimming are just are, are just like a telling history of the US and its complicated relationship with its empire, because they tried to different forces try to use Duke to integrate Hawaiians as kind of natural part. So the history of this sport is really interesting. And one of Duke's main partners was actually a woman named Doris Duke, who's this really weird, I don't know if you all know her, but she's this really weird socialite bazillionaire. And even, yeah, no, she's it's wild. Lauren Bacall plays her in a, in a mini series at one point. She just has like a bazillion dollars and does crazy things all over the world. And she bought this house that she called Shangri-La in Hawaii and was a close friend of Duke. And they surfed together all the time. So there's also not very many mentions of the history of women always being very involved in surfing from the very beginning or that it was always a colonial enterprise.
2: I mean, I think that I have had the beautiful experience of actually surfing a couple of years ago when I was in Hawaii. It was very, very difficult. But when we were taught, this was in when I was in Waikiki and I have this really cool video of me completely, completely doing well and standing and then wiping out so hard. And it's one of my favorite videos of myself because A, this culture is, surfing culture is so tied into as Amira said, the respect of indigenous culture and water and how water is such a powerful part of Polynesian tradition. And when we were standing and getting you know, a little lesson on the, on the beach, me and my two eldest, and I have to tell you I was better than both of them, and I used this opportunity to say it publicly, they mentioned this, that surfing was actually a form of transportation and fun. And it was really interesting to me to hear that because I'd never thought of surfing as a form of transportation, and it's just was, it just was—it was really cool to to sort of hear that and think. I mean, my understanding of surfing was very like baja. Dylan from 90210 and the backseat of his convertible Porsche. Like that was my exposure to surfing. I grew up on the East coast of Canada. So, you know, there wasn't a massive surfing scene that I was aware of. So like, it was just very, but to hear about this and to hear about decolonizing our brains in history, I think it's these points that y'all bring up. And especially because when the traditions and the introduction of surfing, what is from actually an indigenous culture, but has been taken over completely very in my mind, it's very similar to yoga. Like the way that yoga has been usurped by like white Lululemon kale eating mat culture. Like, like don't even sun salute me. Like I can't even with that. Like, do you even understand what namaste means? Sorry, this is like a, a shireen rant. But so like surfing is very much like that. Is it a form of prayer? Is it a form of? I think about this a lot. Like when. And how does it look to to that culture when they see it being taken over and and millions of dollars put into the men's side of it? Because as we'll hear in the interview with Bonnie uh, coming up on the show, it's very much a male dominated subculture as well. Amira?
1: Yeah, I just wanted to wrap us up with thinking, pulling that kind of history now to present day, where women in surfing have been not just fighting around pay equality, but just like acceptance. So if you think your first introduction to surfing might have been like the Disney movie Johnny Tsunami. But there was then two Hollywood movies centered on women surfers, both Soul Surfer and Blue Crush, that kind of became the one way that women in surfing became thought about. And so I think that one of the things that women surfers have had to fight is acceptance within a sport on their terms. And they were dealing with things like, you know, a different surfing legend, Laird Hamilton, who basically was like, hey, shark attacks occur because women surfers are in the water when they're menstruating. Oh, my God. And there's God. blood in the water. And so oh
3: there my... is... <laughs> of course <laughs> they just, not kidding. Of course they did. Of course you're not. I mean, I believe, <laughs> I believe that 100%. I just also, what the fuck?
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. So when we talk about women in surfing trying to forge their own way. This has been one of the things that they've pushed back against is that their very presence has been usually relegated to like handing out a trophy or smiling on the beach in a thong and they've pushed that but I also because we do and we always have to understand this intersectionality right I really wanted to end by highlighting this really great organization in the Bay Area called Brown Girl Surf
2: Oh yeah, and it was started by
1: Miriam Mira Manny Kim, um and she has started this program that aims to teach young girls and women of color that quote the ocean and surfing is theirs to inhabit and you know she says look it's really hard to imagine you can be a surfer if that's not what is expected or encouraged for you to be and if nobody around you surf you don't see people who look like you surfing it can be really hard to take that imaginative leap and picture yourself winding a wave and being out there But as Shereen pointed to, there's so much besides being a sport and stuff like that. But there's a lot that people gain from being on the water and, and surfing. And it's something that should definitely be opened up. And so this organization is really dope. And she says, you know, her ultimate hope is that surfing becomes a sport that accurately reflects the diversity of the places where it exists. And I think that really points to how we started this discussion about colonialism and Native Hawaiian culture is that surfing has kind of grown as it's brought in money, as it's, you know, the global surfing market has expanded. That expansion has also come at the cost of people of color and and women who want access and have had access before to a sport, but have been now locked out of the, you know, profitability of that sport.
2: I just wanted to add one thing that as Amira was talking, it triggered something in me to remember and Brenda just sent me something as well. Water and use on the water of surfing is an incredible form of resistance. Like we hear about female surfers in Gaza in occupied Palestine, and how they're on the water and they feel the sense of freedom. And then there is there are women surfers in Iran, and which is which is beautiful to see because you know all these places you know, have coastlines. And then one of the most interesting pieces I've ever worked on it was a while ago, about four or five years ago, about a woman surfer, the sole woman surfer surfer in Cox's are in Bangladesh and how you know, she went against custom and tradition, but said that she felt an incredibly profound sense of freedom that she would never feel on land. No one could oppress her. No one could suppress her because nobody could catch her. And I found this to be incredibly moving and like so, so important. And, and and just in light of that, the stories that I had followed were all of women and women in those places, because of course, like Amir said, wherever you have water, you can have surfing. And it just, you know, gets me, excited about it and about the possibilities that are out there for these women and you know I hope they all hang 10. Next up is my interview with the amazing Bonnie Sui. First of all Bonnie's incredible she's recently published a book called Why We Swim. She was born in Queens, New York raised in Long Island. She attended Harvard University. She's also a competitive swimmer. She rode crew in university, snowboarded, and she lived in Australia where she not only raced in triathlons and climbed Mount Arapiles, but she accomplished so much more. Her writing is stunning. And I came across Bonnie's work from an absolutely gorgeous piece in California Sunday on Maverick's surfing competition. It's a visually stunning piece. Uh, The writing is gorgeous. And I recommend everybody go out, grab a copy. And I'm so delighted to have Bonnie on today to talk about her work, surfing, swimming, and her new book. Thank you so much. So let's dive in. You see what I did there? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Bonnie, can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with the water? Oh, sure. I mean, I grew up swimming
4: from a really young age and the book that I am wrapping up now, Why We Swim. So we grew up at Jones Beach, you know, here on Long Island. I'm actually in New York now, so I can talk about it like my hometown <laughs> in that really immediate way. And I spent you know, our days at the beach and, and on swim team. And my parents actually met in a swimming pool in Hong Kong. And my father was lifeguard and my mom was, you know, just this beautiful swimmer. And of course they fell in love. And that was always part of our family lore. And so we just, my brother and I swam and we're lifeguards. And and then, it, you know, about 10 years ago, I started surfing. You know, I'd always tried it every once in a while when I would go somewhere where it was possible to do warm water and then living in San Francisco and living in Berkeley now I do the ocean was right there and the only thing was that it was cold so cold water surfing is something that you really have to gird your loins for and so just put on your wetsuit put on your hoodie put on your booties and your gloves and once I got that whole thing down I you know I just started surfing regularly and now I get out probably couple times a week either at ocean beach or in pacifica or up in belinas and i just love it so much but what i do is very different from what these women big wave surfers do in this story um, for california sunday so let's just make that distinction
2: very clear <laughs> that scene and coupled with and then i wanted to ask you about this diversity in terms of racialized diversity. Is surfing diverse in that way? What does the scene look like? Like are there women of color out there people of color out there? Is it a predominantly white sport still?
4: That's a funny question to answer because if you go around the world to you know, I've surfed in a lot of places and you surf in Hawaii and you see, you know, lots of people out who are brown, (laughs) you know, people of color and you go to you know surf in indonesia i mean it's like it's just the locals the locals are surfing the waves where they are and i think what you're asking it's the competition level so that's an interesting question because competition is so such a specific slice of the sport and it's very people, it's controversial, people feel very ambivalent about it, even people who are competing, because how do you judge surfing? And so surfing is something that is, it can be available to everyone, you know, if you have a board and can swim and an ocean nearby. And so lots of people, you know, it's equal access in that way, like you just need a surfboard and you need the waves. And if you can borrow one or, you know, have one available to you. Like it can be like a crappy old beater board and you just have the best time. And there's a spirit of sharing out there in terms of, well, I think that sort of originally that spirit, that aloha spirit, but then of course, surfing can be so territorial. It can be so competitive. It can be so, you know, mean, (laughs) you know, and so you're out there in terms of, and you're asking about diversity in the sport like gender diversity it's very very male dominated and has been for a long time and so that's what we're seeing with even if you're just going out and you're not competing like you know 90 percent of the time 95 percent of the time at ocean beach i'm the only woman or maybe i'm going out with a friend who's also a woman and you just don't see a lot of girls out there and that's changing. But I still feel like there's this kind of this kind of do you belong here question. And I feel like I have and maybe it's just this sort of like idealized vision I have of surfing from, you know, visiting friends in Hawaii and surfing there and just having it feel like, you know, it's, it's, it's inviting, you know, you grow up the sort of culture in Hawaii is the culture of the, you know, the watermen, like where you You're able to do everything. You grow up surfing and swimming and paddleboarding and and doing all these things and canoeing. And so that culture of invitation, I think, has evolved over the years um, when it comes to surfing that makes it feel very actually exclusionary. And I don't think that's what surfing is about at all.
2: Right. And and on a global level, you're absolutely right. There's women in, in Bangladesh who surf. There's women in Palestine who surf. There are women in Iran in the South that surf. So like, right. And so it's like, of course there are.
4: Right. And so, but when you talk about surfing in competition and in the sort of the culture globally, it is very white. It feels really white. It feels really male. And I think that when you kind of look more locally, that's not true.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. Just to sort of, you know, expand on that a little and, and, and ask you, when you look to a role model for surfing, mm-hmm. who would you look to? Or does it have to come within? Because there's this marked absence of like top level, if young girls wanted to get into it, and even young boys, who can they look at? To to sort of say I want to be like this person or
4: you know um, it's really it was really interesting for the story okay so so we're talking we can talk about surfing we also talk about the, you know this particular story is about big wave surfing right so people who are really riding the giants you know these huge like five story waves so if you talk about women in surfing you know it's a it's a small number in competition anyway. You talk about women in surfing, big waves, it's even smaller, you know? And then of course, like as a sport sort of recreationally, women are very interested in surfing and and often start surfing actually later. I mean, I know, and and I know this is sort of skewed because of like the the women I know who are surfing and pick up surfing as adults and all that in the Bay Area. I mean, there's, there are many surfers. I mean, I know many surfers who are started, you know, not as kids, but In terms of role models, talking to Sarah Gerhardt and Bianca Valenti, who are two of the big wave surfers in the story, Sarah Gerhardt was the first woman to surf Mavericks in 99. So 1999 is, you know, you think about the first formal competition that it was just for men and it was billed as, you know, like men who ride giants kind of thing. (laughs)
2: Lots of machismo there. (laughs)
4: Right, and then a couple of weeks, or or riding mountains, you know, men who ride mountains, I think it was. And then it was a couple of weeks afterwards. She, after the competition, I think, in February, she went out to Mavericks and paddled out and caught her first wave at Mavericks. And so she was the, she is widely known as the first woman to surf Mavericks. And then, you know, the next month in March of 99, she went out again. She would paddled out before and she, you know, she hadn't caught a wave prior to that February, 99 session. And then she went out in March and then caught a wave. And so that was the one that was caught on camera by, by a photographer on the beach. And so that was like, you know, the first proof that there was a woman who surfed <laughs> Mavericks. And when I talked to her about surfing, you know, she grew up, she grew up surfing in Hawaii and surf the North shore with all these guys. And, you know, she was always the only woman out there, she said, and, she would even, she, there wouldn't be wetsuits or there wouldn't be gear for her. She always had to wear the men's stuff because there was no equipment for her that. And so she just would always wear these things that were ill fitting. And, and then when she moved to California and she's a chemistry, she got to get her PhD in chemistry in Santa Cruz. So she's a professor, she's a teacher. And so she started surfing Mavericks then when she moved to Santa Cruz And so she talks about the whole evolution over the decades of women in the sport, girls in the sport. And, you know, she was there when she was the only one, (laughs) you know, even in Hawaii back then, just just having to kind of deal with the, you know, the machismo, I guess, on the water. Um, But she said, you know, she said she felt lucky because she fell in with a crew of guys who were cool, like were cool and just saw her as another surfer. Um, But that wasn't always the case whenever she went out and wherever she would go out.
2: Bonnie, where can we find
4: you and your work? I have been a longtime contributor to the New York Times. And so I have actually started out writing for the travel section, and um, still do a little bit of, of contributing there. But I've written for Sunday Review, um, a lot of opinion pieces, and about gender and race and sex, <laughs> and so all this stuff that all the burning hot issues of the day. And swimming, and so sport is a really powerful part of my life, and and, and certainly surfing and swimming. And so I feel I certainly have a personal interest in sport and being an athlete for all of my life, I feel that that contributed so positively to my self and identity and how I view myself and how I feel in the world. And of course, that's really, really powerful. So where can we get your book? <laughs> so I will tell you that right now I'm editing my book. So we're in editing mode. The book is slated to be published next year. So because of the publishing industry is it takes a while. <laughs> well, you I, I hope everyone's going to look for why we swim next year in, in 2019.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down, like the history of surfing and the challenges that the women in the community still face are incredible. And, you know, I hope you enjoy all the waves and all the water everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and you too. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being on the show. Now it's time for our favorite part of the show, the burn pile. Brenda, what are you torching?
0: I am torching figuratively, of course, and my fingers are crossed behind my back, the administration of the College of the Ozarks, a Christian liberal arts college in rural Missouri, which has changed its uniforms so that they would not wear Nike following its the announcement of its deal with Colin Kaepernick this week. This is the same liberal arts college that wouldn't play other teams if they had students demonstrating against police brutality. Thus, the men's division two NAIA basketball national tournament had to be moved from the school that it had hosted it for 18 seasons. College of the Ozarks president Jerry Davis said in the release quote, "If Nike is ashamed of America, we are ashamed of them. We also believe that those who know what sacrifice is all about are more likely to be wearing a military uniform than an athletic uniform." End of quote. <laughs> I feel like this could be a group burn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally burn. Oh, it. Is, is, so, in any case it gets better. Just just hang on. Hang on. Buckle in for Two more seconds here. I did some research into two very interesting things. First, they have a dean of patriotism. Their college admissions dean <laughs> what? is... What? Yes. Yes. And I, probably make six figures. Not, probably. <laughs> probably. Although probably they're sacrificing salary altogether for their Christian and patriotic duty, Amira.
3: Obviously. I, I doubt they would Obviously. take a <laughs>
0: In 2017, the college instituted a new requirement that all freshmen take a course called "quote patriotic education and fitness."
3: End of quote. Oh, which Lindsay inc- burned that, didn't she?
0: Which includes she she did back in the day. Yes. So so uh. so they've come up again, right? <laughs> and and the course includes tying knots. That's part oh, of yeah. the, the course requirement, which is amazing. Uh. It's just I know, but I did some further research. And according to the data that I can find, the College of the Ozarks has approximately zero African-American students or faculty, absolutely zero. Now, I I could be wrong, and I, I challenge our wonderful Patreons and listeners to try to figure it out for me, but I did some pretty good research. And if you adjust for international students, it actually has zero minorities at all. So is this the kind of college that should get to make this comment? And what are you teaching your students besides not tying? Because I it sounds like you're teaching them just general obedience. The women's volleyball team wore gray shirts this week. And so that's how important being sure that they stifle patriotic dissent is. So I want to burn them. I want to burn
3: them. Burn. 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 Chess? Yeah. So this week in Washington, D.C., the Senate held hearings for Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh, as you would suspect, is a conservative judge. And there are real worries about how he's going to rule on all kinds of cases, but especially abortion rights, given that he's replacing the main swing vote on abortion cases for decades, Justice Kennedy. I don't want to get too into the weeds here on Kavanaugh and his record and the fact that he maybe perjured himself at the hearings this week. I suggest checking in with coverage. definitely perjured himself. (laughs) I suggest checking in with coverage of the site Rewire News uh, for that kind of stuff, especially the work of Jessica Piklow and Imani Gandhi. What I do want to burn is the fact that late in the hearings, about a dozen current and former players of the girls' basketball team Kavanaugh coaches through the Catholic Youth Organization were paraded behind him on camera. According to the New York Times, and this is literally how the New York Times reported it, quote, About a dozen current and former players in blue sweaters, ponytails, and plaid skirts showed up to watch. They sat in the front rows right behind their coach. Judge Kavanaugh introduced each of them, rattling off their names and, in a remarkable display of memory not devoted to legal precedent, their grades. Thanks, New York Times. So, please let me quote our friend Lindsay Gibbs, who could not be here today, but who tweeted about this on Thursday. And so here, this is, I'm quoting Lindsay. Girls' sports are not your shield. PSA. Being nice and respectful to people in person does not give you a pass on supporting oppressive policies, and supporting inclusive progressive policies does not give you a pass on being an asshole. Aim for both. I feel so, so sorry for those girls being used as a political prop by a man who is fighting for the chance to take their rights away. Their parents should be ashamed for allowing it. Thank you Lindsay Gibbs. I am 100% with her. Burn all that bullshit. Burn. 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 Oh.
2: So, I'm going to burn bar stool. I guess you could say it metaphorically. <laughs> I know so that. Go, ahead. go <laughs> ahead. We have permanent incinerators, fifas in one. <laughs> They're Michigan made of wood State is in one, <laughs> right? Those bar stools <laughs> exactly. ready to be torched. <laughs> That is so good. So this week, and I get this, a lot of this information as well from a woman named Julia Poe, who writes for the Daily Trojan. Barstool decided to go after Skylar Diggins-Smith, who is an amazing guard for the Dallas Wings and was in the WNBA playoffs. And They literally started making up quotes and rewording what she had said completely out of context. And this is, I'm going to call it a fraternity, a club, a series of twat waffles is maybe what I can (laughs) identify Barstool (laughs) as. Cult. They present themselves as media and I don't understand how you can ethically even publish shit like this. They literally went after her. And it's so frustrating because as as Poe said, uh, Julia Poe, she said, the wide amount of misogyny the site has spouted is it really possible like that they really hit a publication low when it posted a series, a series of fabricated quotes by Skyler, and I think it's it's really 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 problematic because a it takes away from the focus that she needs to have, and b it's completely going after her because they're legendary in their misogynoir. They're legendary when it comes to like being complete assholes, and the fact that they do this and still get tons and tons of money for this and I do not get called out. At some points, it makes me feel frustrated. So I'm two part going to burn, metaphorically burn their listeners and their supporters because there are millions of them who get their news, sports news from BS, which I think is a very appropriate acronym for this place. And also the fact that they're going after her in a way that's unacceptable and absolutely just problematic and toxic and evil. So I'm going to burn. BS
3: burn
1: burn, as you probably heard on our hot take, we had a lot of thoughts, and there was many burnable things that happened this past weekend at the u s Open. But I wanted to bring up one point in particular, and this has been going on for a very long time with Naomi Osaka as she's moved into the spotlight with her Haitianness. Ergo, her blackness is constantly being erased. So back at the Australian Open of this year, for instance, a reporter asked her constantly to comment on her kind of relationship with both Japan and the United States as she holds dual citizenship. Again, Naomi was born in Osaka, moved to the United States when she was three, and her mom is Japanese, her father is Haitian, and she grew up mostly in the United States. And so reporters are fascinated with this kind of complexity. So she's always getting questions about her identity, particularly centered around her relationship between both Japan and the United States. And she always goes out of her way to remind people that she's Black. So the reporter asks her, you know, what is your relationship like? And she's literally like, "Uh uh-huh. And my father's Haitian, so represent. I'm sorry, I forgot your question. Um, (laughs) I adore her. She's amazing. (laughs) She is so amazing. Just last week at the U.S. Open, another reporter asked her to comment on her relationship between all of these different cultures, meaning Japan and the United States. And Naomi said, I feel like we do this every time. And she said, okay, I was born in Japan, I moved to the United States, I grew up, you know, with my mom and dad, my dad's Haitian. Even after she put it out there again, my dad is Haitian, stop erasing it. The reporter circled back and followed up by saying, so tell us about what you draw from Japanese culture versus American culture. And Naomi said... Well, I grew up in New York with my dad's family and my grandmother. So I actually grew up in a Haitian household. This came up again as I watch all the kind of laudatory like packages roll in. Celebrating her win as the first of... Somebody, a player from Japan to pay, win a major Grand Slam. And that is certainly the case. But it's also the first time we have a player of Haitian descent to do so. And it's the second year in a row that we've had Black women in the U.S. Open final. And that should be celebrated as to... Naomi is clearly Black woman. And not understand that is to not understand diaspora. It's to not understand biraciality. It's not to understand the way race works in this world at all. And Naomi continues to insist and continues to remind this is not she's not madison key she's not saying i'm just madison she's literally telling you time and time again she is black she is haitian she is all of these things so stop erasing one part of her i'm burning it
3: Burn.
2: now after all that brilliant burning let's talk and amplify amazing women Badass Women of the Week honorable nominations, go to Spanish National Women Basketball players, Maria and Angeles Arayo, for being the first mother-daughter player to play for the national team. We would also like to shout out the finalists for FIFA's Women's Best Player Award, for Marta, for being up there one more time, Ada Hegerberg and Jennifer Marosan. We would like to also recognize the WNBA for 31% increase in viewership of this year's playoffs thus far. Sylvia Sweeney, former Canadian basketball captain who was recently awarded the Order of Canada. Fatima abdul of Hodi Africa for being a finalist for the FIFA Diversity Award and the winner will be announced September 23rd. Kim Little and Scotland's women's football team for qualifying for the 2019 FIFA World Cup for the first time ever. Jane Perdon, who is the new first exec for Women in Football, the organization in the United Kingdom. Also want a special mention the Danish women's football team of 1971, who were the official winners of the unofficial World Cup in that year, 1971, that were finally honored for their achievement in Viborg, Denmark on September 4th. Sam Kerr, for winning the 2018 NWSL Golden Boot Award. And can I get a drum roll, please?
0: (laughs) Wait, I wasn't ready. Me neither, I'm ready.
2: That's some hasty percussion, Amira. That was Uh, me. Okay, sorry, Brad. Our Badass Woman of the Week. Goes to Naomi Osaka, the 20 year old Haitian Japanese American US Open winner. We love you. We're proud of you. And we hope you keep slaying. Woo! Woo! (laughs) What's good, friends? Amira, tell me what's good.
1: (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I I did an escape room this weekend. It was fun. I won, of course. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) I'm literally as recording this, booking an escape room for to do with Brenda and Shireen when they come into (laughs) Central PA in two weeks. So I'm really, I'm really looking forward to that. And just generally, you guys are what's good. You make my weeks get off to a great start. I love chatting with you.
3: Yeah, I'm so happy to be back. That that is what's good. But also, I got to go to the baseball women's World Cup, and that was so much fun. Japan was as good as everyone told me they were going to be. I heard that they were the baddest woman of the week last week. But it was just a real joy to get to watch these women play baseball. And I felt very fortunate that I was able to go and I should have a couple more pieces about it coming out this week at the Huffington Post. And the last thing is that my kid turns 10 on Wednesday. So and then my husband turn well, I'm not gonna say that, but it's his birthday next (laughs) Sunday. So we are entering what I like to call the cake portion of the year. So (laughs) (laughs) I am very excited about the Virgos in my life and their birthdays and their cake. So that's what's good. Awesome. Brenda?
0: Well, what's good now is that Amira just booked an escape room. So, (laughs) um,
3: So now I'm really
0: happy at this moment. That is really exciting. And let's see. I love having Jess back on the show. I know this is a lot about ourselves and it kind of sounds narcissistic. So I'll tell you one more thing, which is that I just started school and it's this honeymoon moment between my classes and I I haven't asked them for anything they haven't asked me from any for anything (laughs) you know it's just like we like each other still there's no tension there I haven't tried to you know poison their minds with my Marxist ramblings and they haven't fought back with anything so it's this like great moment where we're all like this class is so happy so I'm enjoying it (laughs) I'm enjoying it so, I have a pretty
2: healthy pile. I saw Christopher Robin last night and it was adorable. It was much needed in terms of happiness. And I love Winnie the Pooh. I think he's one of the greatest philosophers of our time in terms of what he says. And I just want to go out and get myself a red balloon. I mean, I know that Antoine Saint-Exupéry is like a, a great thing and Le Petit Prince is like revered, but I just really strongly feel like Pooh is above him. Also, you know, a bear of color. You know what I'm saying? So I'm all there for that. My daughter won her League Cup yesterday. I was visiting my mom and I wasn't able to come, so she won the League Cup, which is a really big deal. They went undefeated this season. She's very excited about that. And when I have a 16-year-old in a good mood, it changes my world beautifully. I did relaunch my website, www.shereenahmed.com, this week. Much thanks to Amina, my webmaster, who did so much work, and I love it. I'm very proud of it. Please check it out. I did want to also say that I accepted a challenge, or I challenged my friend Caitlin Burns, who writes for Rewire. They were recently unionized, so that's wonderful. Congrats to them. But I accepted a cornhole challenge. From Caitlin. Right, <laughs> Tom Yes. Because I I am pretty <laughs> I am pretty good at cornhole. I call it being Bag Toss because I think cornhole is an American thing. And so I don't know when that will happen, but I love her and I think this is wonderful. Lastly, I would like to say that I'm very, very excited about the Burn It All Down merchandise. Very, very excited. I need those pillows. I need everything and I'm just really happy. My birthday is in January, if anyone cares. So that's it
1: and can we just say Lashana Tova happy Rosh Hashanah to all our flamethrowers celebrating this week
2: Shana Tova everybody that's all for this week in burn it all down burn it all down lives on SoundCloud but can be found on iTunes Stitcher Google Play, and Tune In. We appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please subscribe and rate to let us know what we did well and how we can improve. You can find us on Facebook at Burn It All Down, on Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod, or on Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod, or you can email us at Burn It All at gmail.com. Check out our fabulous website at www.burnitalldownpod.com, where you will find previous episodes, transcripts, a link to our Patreon, and coming soon, our store. We would appreciate you subscribing, sharing, and rating our show, which helps us do the work we love to do. Keep burning what needs to be burned. From Amira, Brenda, Jessica, I'm Shereen Ahmed. Thanks for being here.